The Biden administration is forgiving $39 billion in federal student loan debt for more than 800,000 borrowers. It's a response to years of complaints, lawsuits, and an NPR investigation that found many longtime borrowers who should have qualified for loan forgiveness did not get it. It's Friday, July 4th, June, July 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, details on the loan forgiveness program. Also ahead, scientists have discovered grains of stardust in a near-Earth asteroid. The dust grains could provide hints about how our solar system formed. And the city of Boston is out with results of the latest homeless census. There's a slight uptick in the number of unhoused people over the last year. Red Sox are back in action tonight, out in Chicago against the club, the Cubs. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. For the first time since 1960, both actors and writers are on strike in Tinseltown. From New York City to Los Angeles, tens of thousands of members of SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild of America unions have walked off the job and onto picket lines after union leaders were unable to reach deals with major studios, including Walt Disney and Netflix, for better pay, more residuals from streaming services and stronger protections against the threat of replacement by artificial intelligence. At NPR, new staff are also members of SAG-AFTRA but are covered under a different labor contract. The work stoppage is prompting studios to halt productions and affecting their contractors, such as prop suppliers and caterers. The extreme heat's got a hold on tens of millions of people in California and other western states. Catherine David Young of member station KJZZ is in Phoenix, Arizona, which is under an excessive heat warning for several days. The city faces extreme heat every summer for long periods of time, but nothing like what it's currently experiencing. The longest stretch Phoenix has ever had at or above 110 degrees was 18 consecutive days back in 1974. But forecasts show that record is likely to be broken in the week ahead since highs have already hit at least 110 every day for two weeks. Overnight low temperatures are also breaking records. Lows have been in the 90s for five straight days. Thursday morning, the temperature never dipped below 95, which has happened only six times since record-keeping began. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Davis-Young in Phoenix. The Republican-led House has narrowly passed the Defense Authorization Act, setting up a showdown in the U.S. Senate. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports a majority of Democrats are blasting the measure, which includes a number of controversial amendments. The bill includes provisions that would limit abortion access, transgender care, and diversity training for service members. Speaking ahead of the vote, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries accused a group of Republican hardliners of waging a culture war at the expense of the U.S. military. They are so obsessed with jamming their extreme right-wing ideology down the throats of the American people that extreme mega Republicans are willing to even detonate the ability of our military. The Defense Authorization Act is typically a bipartisan undertaking, but only four Democrats join Republicans in passing the House measure. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. 
The Dow Jones Industrial Average has closed up 113 points to end the day at 34,509. The S&P and the Nasdaq were both down. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A Mattapan man pleaded not guilty today to charges related to the shooting death of his 12-year-old brother. The charges against 22-year-old Walter Hendrick include improperly storing a firearm. The 12-year-old died yesterday after being shot inside a Mattapan home. After today's arraignment, Diane Ellis talked about her grandson and his death. He was, I would say, very helpful, loving, respectful, a lot of respect. Until I get some answers, my feelings are numb. It's numb. Prosecutors say Walter Hendrick does not have a criminal history. Boston City Councilor Kendra Kendra Lara says she is hopeful she will be re-elected despite her driving record and last month's crash that injured her seven-year-old son. Lara tells the Boston Globe she hopes her constituents will focus on her two years of work on the city council. Lara is facing two primary opponents in September. Police say Lara crashed her unregistered and uninsured car into a Jamaica Plain home while she was going twice the speed limit. Massachusetts Congresswoman and House Minority Whip Catherine Clark is criticizing Republicans for blocking abortion coverage and transgender care in the military. Hard-right House Republicans forced the measure to be included in the defense bill that was just passed. Clark tells CNN she's upset with the limits to abortion access for military women. This is another step in their march towards a national abortion ban. So the message here is outrageous. To women service members, they're saying you are not allowed to travel for the health care that you need while you are serving our country, defending liberty. The House bill is expected to die in the Democratic majority Senate. Thunderstorms around New York are causing delays over at Logan Airport. The FAA reports flights scheduled for Newark, JFK and LaGuardia airports are being held up. The average delay for a flight into JFK is reported to be over two hours. Some flights coming into Boston are also being delayed by up to an hour because of the backup. It'll be mostly cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms could produce some heavy rain. The low tonight will be around 71. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. Chances some showers and thunderstorms before 3 p.m. tomorrow. The highs will be around 84. It's 81 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florida in Culver City, California. $39 billion, that is the amount of student loan debt that the U.S. Education Department will erase for borrowers who were denied the benefits of one program. It was designed to help people based on their income. The announcement came earlier today, and it's part of a promise the Biden administration made last year, in part in response to an NPR investigation. NPR's Corey Turner led that investigation, and he joins me now. Hi, Corey. Hey, Adrian. Corey, tell us about this program. It must have been pretty broken if it needed a $39 billion fix. Yeah, I mean, even Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, in announcing the changes today, used that very word, broken. Uh, The problems all stem from a repayment plan that 
pegs a borrower's monthly payments to their income. So folks with lower incomes have lower monthly payments, even as low as zero dollars. Uh, it was meant to be a safety net in the federal student loan program. These income-driven plans, IDR plans, have also for years promised borrowers that if they make these monthly payments for 20 years, Adrian, mm -hmm. the government would then forgive whatever's left after that. Here's the problem. Borrowers were spending 20 years or more in this system, but nobody was getting forgiveness. There was this one incredible review from borrower advocates that came down in 2021 in the spring. Abby Shafroth was part of it. She's an attorney at the National Consumer Law Center. We found that there were over 4 million borrowers who had been in repayment for over 20 years, but that only 32 borrowers had ever had their loans forgiven through the IDR program. That's 32 borrowers out of more than 4 million. Wow. Now, Adrian, at least as part of this fix, 800,000 of them are going to be getting their debts erased. And that includes, this is worth noting, some of the oldest borrowers with some of the oldest loans in the entire system. Well, what wasn't working in this program that made it uh, so hard for borrowers to get this debt relief? Yeah, so first, for years when low-income borrowers would call their loan servicer and say, help, I can't afford my payment, servicers would often simply put them into forbearance and not an IDR plan. And then in April of 2022, NPR published an investigation that I did with my editor, Nicole Cohen, around a bunch of leaked Ed Department documents that we found that showed even more problems and that the department knew about them for years. So those include several loan servicers weren't even keeping track of borrowers' payments, so they had no idea when a borrower actually qualified for forgiveness. Uh, we also found that the record system that Ed and its servicers use is so bad that when a borrower is transferred from one servicer to another, which happens fairly often, their payment history can get cut off or even lost. And keep in mind, Adrian, that is a problem when getting forgiveness depends on somebody having 20 years of really good records. Sure. Uh, so not long after we published our findings, the Biden administration pledged to do a one-time review of millions of borrower accounts, essentially giving them retroactive credit for all sorts of time that should have counted towards forgiveness, but didn't. And that is what we're seeing right now. Corey, does this uh, announcement today have anything to do with the Supreme Court's recent decision to strike down President Biden's big uh, debt relief plan? No, it, it's a little confusing. Uh, it's just weird timing. Um, it's also worth noting, though, while we're talking about the court, Adrian, that this action is likely not vulnerable to a court challenge because it is essentially the Ed Department trying to fix some very serious, longstanding problems within the student loan program. Okay, so uh, is there anything that borrowers uh, will need to do in order to qualify for this relief? Uh, for the most part, no. This is an automatic review the department is doing of borrower records. But there is one group that does need to act. They have very old federal loans. They're known as FEL loans. They are not held by the government. They are held by commercial lenders. These borrowers need to consolidate these old FEL loans into a new federal direct loan in order to qualify. There is time. This review is far from over. Ed says it's going to take them into 2024, which is important. I think these 800,000 borrowers are really just the beginning. That's NPR's Corey Turner. Thank you. You're welcome. Scientists have made a surprising discovery in a sample returned from an asteroid. As NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, it contains tiny particles from far beyond our solar system. 
NASA researcher Ann Wynn studies dust. A general comment that I get is, I've got dust under my bed you can study. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't study that kind of dust. <laughs> I study stardust. Now, you've probably heard somewhere before this idea that we're all made of stardust. That's because stars forged nearly all the elements in the universe. The atoms that make up our bodies were themselves made inside the core of a star somewhere else. The core is extremely hot, and then as you go out in the atmosphere beyond, it's cool enough so that gas can form and aggregate into tiny grains. Cosmic dust motes. Sometimes the star would explode, blowing the little grains across the galaxy like dandelion seeds. Other times the grains would drift away on their own, traveling on the stellar wind into deep space. Probably a lot of them do get destroyed, but some of them survive and they make it to our region of the universe where our solar system formed. The stardust swirled and clumped and eventually became part of the sun, the planets, and yes, us. These materials all played a part in our life here on Earth. The problem is the original dust grains were very fragile, and so when they became part of this new solar system, they were broken up and blended. Their origins were lost. Scientists like Anne Wynn want to know more about where they came from. Yeah, that is one of the big questions in cosmochemistry. Then in 2019, a Japanese spacecraft visited a little asteroid called Yugu. It scooped up a tiny sample, and an even tinier portion of that sample found its way to Wynn's lab. She fired up her best dust analyzers and got ready to nerd out on some asteroid grit. I kind of thought, you know, the results I would get would be kind of run-of-the-mill but as her team writes in the journal Science Advances, the sample contained organic molecules from deep space, pieces of ancient rock from the very edge of our solar system, and many tiny grains of perfectly preserved stardust. I cannot tell you the excitement I felt and just euphoria almost. Because these grains are part of the story of how we got here, blown on an interstellar wind long ago. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Just about every parent knows this. Toddlers and little kids love to repeat things over and over again. It can sometimes leave parents bored or exhausted when their child asks to read a favorite book for the hundredth time. But in this week's installment of our weekly dose of wonder, NPR's Ritu Chatterjee explains repetition is essential to a child's development. My son was about four months old when I first noticed how he could spend a long time doing the same thing over and over again. He wasn't doing a whole lot back then besides eating, pooping and sleeping, but the rest of his waking hours he spent focused on trying to touch the toys in the mobile over his crib. And he kept at it for weeks, even after he'd mastered the work of touching and tugging at the toy. Now, my son is three years old and still busy doing things on repeat. Everything from foods he loves to eat, toys he loves to play with, and YouTube videos he loves to watch. These, these machines also work on me because in the night, the crops are wrong, so they cut it in the night. He's watched this video countless times over the past couple of months, so much that I have become allergic to the soundtrack. But the little guy's enthusiasm persists. See, that is the right hook. See, it's pouring in. 
Oh, it's going to pour what it harvested into the dump truck over there? Yeah. So why do kids love to repeat things? Repetition is a really critical component to early learning. Rebecca Parlakian is an expert on early childhood development at the nonprofit Zero to Three. She says kids are born with a drive to figure out the world around them. So often I hear adults saying, well, how do we motivate children to learn? Oh, you do not have to motivate children to learn. They are driven to master the world around them. And, you know, they do that through repetition. Learning requires creating new neural circuits in the brain. And she says neural connections in those circuits are reinforced through repeated experiences. So through practice, they're strengthening these connections and they're, you know, building that infrastructure in the brain. Also, she says babies and children are like little scientists. They're testing the rules of the world when they do things on repeat. Think about a really common scenario like a child, you know, a baby even throwing food off the high chair and the dog, you know, leaps on it and eats it up. And it's this wonderful, satisfying game. And they keep repeating the game until the baby runs out of the cheese and throws a spoon down instead. The spoon scares the dog and all of a sudden, you know, the dog kind of runs into the other room and the game is over. But the baby learns something new, that the spoon hitting the floor frightens the dog away. Parlekin says as children learn things by doing things over and over, they also start to take some comfort from being able to predict how something will unfold. There's something so nurturing when you can anticipate exactly what will happen in a routine or in a story. That's especially obvious during our son's nighttime routine, which involves my husband or I reading his favorite books. What are we reading? Don't Dumb truck books. Oh. Now I know that this nightly ritual, repeated over and over again, has already taught him so many things about the world around him. Dumb trucks, diggers, loaders, and bulldozers are all types of... Welcome machines. And it also gives him the comfort and safety of knowing that once we're done reading, he will fall asleep with his head resting on my shoulder. Read to Chatterjee, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Thanks so much for listening to 90.9 WBUR on this muggy Friday afternoon. Coming up in about 15 minutes, heavy precipitation caused epic flooding in California's Central Valley earlier this year, causing catastrophic damage to homes and crops. Months later, the region is still recovering. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day mixed today. The Dow was up 0.33% at 34,509. NASDAQ was down 0.18% at 14,114. 
and the S&P 500 was down one-tenth of a percent at 45.05. In local business news, Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling on the Justice Department to investigate companies that prepare taxes for people. Warren says a report she released this week found companies like H&R Block may have shared customer data with major tech companies. Speaking on WBUR's Radio Boston, Warren says the breach likely included sensitive personal information and violated federal law. You cannot share taxpayer information without getting the written permission of the taxpayer. And if you do, you can be subject not just to fines, but to criminal penalties. Warren says Google and Facebook should also be investigated to see if they received the personal information. It's 420. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot valuing their commitment to be diverse and inclusive in all of their stores, distribution centers, and offices. OceanStateJobLot.com Mostly cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms could produce some heavy rain. The lows tonight will be around 71. It's 81 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. As a heat wave sweeps the southwest, California's Central Valley is under an excessive heat warning all weekend. That region is still recovering from floods earlier this year, with immigrant farm workers among the most affected. From member station KQED in San Francisco, Taiki Hendricks reports. Gracias. In the little town of Planada, in the heart of the Central Valley, Miriam Herrera Seja shows me the damage in her rented house. The floors are buckling and the doors are stuck. In January, as heavy rains hit the area, a levee on a canal ruptured and flooded out hundreds of families in this farm community. Now, Herrera Seja, a mother of three, is facing unexpected expenses. Water ruined the fridge, the oven, the washer and dryer, and the car her husband needs to get to his job at a dairy farm. She tells me they had come to Planada fleeing the violence of a criminal gang in Mexico and were admitted to the U.S. to seek asylum. We were just starting over, she says, and now we're left with nothing again. She says she applied for aid from FEMA but was rejected. Only certain non-citizens qualify. She was able to replace the appliances with second-hand things and got donated furniture. They had to spend the money they'd saved for an immigration lawyer to get a working car. Mm. A few blocks away, Anastasio Rosales is still salvaging and disinfecting his belongings, stacked under tarps on his back patio. He shows me the mark on a wall from where the floodwaters pooled three feet deep. He got some money from FEMA, but says it barely made a dent. He depended on volunteers to help tear out the sodden sheetrock. 
Though he's 70 years old, he says he wants to get back to work in the sweet potato fields. The planting was delayed because the fields were swamped, he says, so now there's not much work. Farm communities throughout California have been hit hard, with workers losing weeks or months of wages. For many of the people who harvest California's crops, the safety net is thin. More than half of the state's farm workers are undocumented immigrants. And though many have worked here for decades, they're not eligible for federal disaster aid or unemployment insurance. These are my constituents who get up and work every day. Most of them have lived in the community for many years. That's State Senator Ana Caballero, who represents Planada and much of the Central Valley. She says many of these communities are also vulnerable because they don't have the systems, like street gutters and storm drains, to keep water away from homes. The unincorporated areas in rural California are areas where there has been disinvestment in the infrastructure. Earlier this year, the state did commit $95 million to flood relief for undocumented residents throughout California. Caballero pushed for and got an additional $20 million to aid people in Planada, regardless of their immigration status. Climate scientists predict that human-caused warming will increase the risks of extreme floods like those seen this year in California. And that raises broader questions about who gets protected from climate disasters, says Edward Flores, co-director of the UC Merced Community and Labor Center. We need to have a different approach to economic and climate resilience if we're going to protect the rights and the well-being of those that are furthest on the margins. He led a survey that tallied the losses in Planada, helping to win state aid. And he says immigration status shouldn't affect eligibility for relief or having a voice in disaster planning. Meantime, there's little risk of further flooding this year. State water officials say rivers are running high, but most of the winter's massive snowpack has already melted. For NPR News, I'm Tyke Hendricks in Planada. Summer camp season is upon us, and so is a comedy called Theater Camp. The mockumentary was created by a couple of former campers who have made it in showbiz, Broadway's Tony winner Ben Platt and Molly Gordon of TV's The Bear. Our critic, Bob Mondello, says he started laughing from the setup. The documentary filmmakers have just turned on their cameras to record the opening day when camp founder Joan keels over from a strobe light effect, the first bye-bye birdie-related injury in the history of Passaic County, we're told, which means the fate of Camp Adirond Acts lies with Joan's son, Troy, to whom she has somehow not passed on the theater gene. What up, Adirondacks? Listen up. Dozens of first-day campers don't hear him at all. Happily, Camp Counselor Amos is close enough to grab the mic. Oh, what a beautiful oh. That is how you quiet little kids who speak fluent Wicked and Sweeney Todd. Though the founder's in a coma, the show must go on, and by show, I mean the original camp musical the counselors write for the kids each year. This year's is about their founder in a coma. Welcome to the first rehearsal of Joan Still. Which they haven't started writing yet. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Emotionally, physically, and spiritually, this is our most complicated piece we've ever tried to do. Most ambitious. Now, we only have three weeks to create a masterpiece. It's on you now. It's up to you. So that's on your shoulders, as well as Joan's well-being and her legacy. All on you. A sea of adolescent faces seeks reassurance. But you so deserve it on every level. You guys are so talented, so unbelievable. This will break you. 
This will fully destroy you. Congratulations on being the most talented kids at camp. Tough love for 10 to 14 year olds who are described at one point as every kid who was ever picked last in gym. They're all fabulous overachievers on stage as judged by the camp faculty. I do believe her as a French prostitute. Amos. Oh, I'm sorry, sex worker. Thank you. Other staffers include a cook who spikes the kids' baked beans with bourbon, an old school dance instructor. Jiggle like a jackal. Jiggle like a total novice. These are the things we can do with masks. These people are really weird. And a hypersensitive costume designer. Sad news, I will not be doing piercings anymore in the hut because there's a narc amongst us. Um, Cassie has narked. Cassie is 11. It's totally fine. All of this while Troy, played as a doofus business bro by Jimmy Tatro, avoids bill collectors and stumbles through meetings with Noah Galvin's tech guy. I'm just gonna take understanding a word you're saying off my list and let you take it from here, brother. Okay. Quick question though, what's a straight play? Well, there, there aren't musicals, and then there are straight plays. So then what would be a gay play? I guess a, 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 a musical. Oh, cool. Theater camp kind of has my name on it. It's designed for folks who will grin at dorms named Rogers and Hammerstein and Candor and Ebb rather than Gryffindor and Slytherin, who will chuckle at celebrating Merrill Day, as in Merrill Streep, and at this pep talk for 11-year-olds. You need to know that only 3% of people make it. The rest end up in a mental facility or on a go-go box in Hell's Kitchen. What's clear in performance is that these folks live this stuff. We're theater people. We know how to turn cardboard into gold. The kids are already great little comedians. The adults are invested because, well, when there's footage of the camp counselors played by Ben Platt and Molly Gordon performing Fiddler on the Roof as children, it's really them as children. They've been friends forever and performed together forever. And while the events spiraling out of control in theater camp are crazy and over the top, for them, this mockumentary clearly has more than a little truth in it. I think this is fun and games. It's not fun. It's art. For the rest of us, it has more than a little laughter. I'm Bob Pandella. This is NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR, 80 degrees in Boston at 430. Coming up in about 20 minutes, we'll have details about the latest homeless census here in the city of Boston. That's ahead here on WBUR. It'll be mostly cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms could produce some heavy rain. The low tonight will be around 71 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of some showers and thunderstorms before 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The high is around 84. Again, right now, it's 80 degrees in Boston. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. New research shows Russian hackers are getting creative when targeting diplomats based in Ukraine. That includes hiding malicious links in an ad for a used car. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin has the story. Russian cyber spies are very interested in monitoring traveling diplomats in Kiev during the war. According to new research from technology firm Palo Alto Networks Unit 42, a hacking group with ties to the Russian Foreign Intelligence Agency called the SVR is sending phishing emails targeting at least 22 of 80 foreign missions in Ukraine. The emails are designed to trick traveling diplomats. 
In recent cases, Russian hackers repurposed a legitimate advertisement posted by a Polish diplomat hoping to sell a used BMW sedan in Kiev, adding a malicious link promising high-quality photos. The Palo Alto researchers say diplomats should be wary of clicking links in advertisements, even if they appear trustworthy at first glance. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. Starting this summer, millions of Americans with federal student loans will be able to apply for a new repayment plan that offers some of the most lenient terms ever. This program is unrelated to the recent Supreme Court ruling, and as NPR's Corey Turner tells us, it's part of a promise the Biden administration made last year because the Education Department and its loan servicers had mismanaged what are called income-driven repayment plans. This actually comes in response to years of criticism from borrowers, borrower advocates, and in fact, in response to an investigation uh, I published in April 2022. It was not long after that the Education Department specifically said, look, we're going to fix this um, and uh, we're going to make a lot of borrowers whole. The problem was many borrowers had made student loan payments for 20 years or more and should have qualified to have their remaining debts erased, but didn't. This is NPR. The University of Georgia and a former star football player are facing a lawsuit over a deadly January crash that killed another player and a staffer. Remember station WABE in Atlanta, Lily Oppenheimer says the crash happened after a celebration of the team's national championship. Victoria Bowles' lawsuit accuses the UGA Athletics Association of negligence. It claims the association knew fellow staffer Chandler LaCroix had several speeding tickets, including two superspeeder violations. Bowles was riding in the back seat of a university-rented SUV driven by LaCroix. Police say LaCroix was racing former defensive tackle Jalen Carter, and a toxicology report shows she had a blood alcohol level of more than twice the legal limit. Bowles' injuries included kidney, liver, and spinal cord damage, as well as neurological issues. The Athletic Association says it will vigorously defend itself in court. A representative for Carter did not return requests for comment. For NPR News, I'm Lily Oppenheimer in Atlanta. WNBA star Brittany Griner has made a remarkable comeback after being incarcerated in Russia for nearly 300 days. Griner didn't know what to expect when the basketball season began this year, and now she's headed to the WNBA All-Star Game this weekend. Griner says she even surprised herself. She was released back in early December in a prisoner swap after being detained on drug charges. On Wall Street, stocks finish mixed. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston public school officials say they're expecting more kids to attend summer learning programs this year than in 2022. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, district leaders hope that increase includes more students with disabilities. BPS is on track to add at least 2,000 students to its roster this summer, bringing total enrollment to about 18,000 students. Will Cardwell is with Boston After School and Beyond, an organization that helps BPS run summer learning. He says the district's inclusion work starts with better advertising. We've been working with the SPED department throughout the year, to ensure that families knew that these are open to all students. Like this does not bar you from being involved in courageous sailing or sportsman tennis or, you know, any of the the great opportunities that are offered. Cardwell says his group and the district hope to expand these efforts next year, too. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The MBTA is reminding riders that shuttle buses will replace trains along the B branch of the Green Line beginning on Monday. 
Workers will replace tracks in Alston during the two-week service disruption. The planned improvements were moved up following a trolley derailment last month in Packard's Corner. Somerville is adding another quarter mile of bus lanes to make it more convenient for people to take the bus. Bus-only lanes are being added on both sides of Broadway between McGrath Highway and Minnesota Avenue. The city hopes to improve bus ride times, reliability, and accessibility. The MBTA will also consolidate stops and make them more accessible for people with disabilities. It's 436. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. Mostly cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms may produce heavy rain. The lows around 71. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. It's already been a summer of extreme weather events. This week alone, we've reported on scorching heat in the southwest and deadly flooding in the northeast. Today, we're going to focus on the waters along the southeastern part of the country. Surface water temperatures along Florida's coast have reached some of the highest levels on record, and the consequences go beyond an uncomfortably hot swim in the ocean for beachgoers. It could also lead to a severe coral bleaching event, which in turn could cost the local economy billions of dollars over time. Katie Lesneski is here to help us understand why. She's a research coordinator for coral restoration at the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, and she joins us now from Key Largo. Welcome. Hi, Adrian. I understand that you work in monitoring coral reef restoration and uh, that you took a dive earlier this week to check what's happening underwater. Can you uh, can you tell me what you saw? Yes, that's correct. So I was out diving almost a week ago right off Isla Morada, which is in the Middle Keys here. And upon just jumping into the water, I could feel at the surface how extraordinarily warm it is for this time of year. Um, As we descended onto the reef, I started to notice some corals undergoing the first stages of bleaching. So we call that paling when they lose their color. And unfortunately, we're expecting to see much more widespread paling and bleaching and likely coral mortality in the coming weeks to months. What's going on with coral when it starts to lose its color? So coral is actually an animal and it harbors in its tissue a symbiotic algae and that algae gives coral the food, the energy that it needs, as well as its brilliant colors. So when conditions aren't right, um, for example, exactly what we're seeing right now with higher water temperatures, that algae will leave the coral. So we're seeing the bright white skeleton underneath it. And if the coral can't recover, again, because it doesn't have its primary food source, it can die within a couple weeks. Well, besides, you know, the obvious visual loss of the colorful corals and the potential death of the coral, you know, what are the broader consequences for the ecosystem? The broader consequences can be pretty dire. We lose the actual physical framework, the structure of reefs. 
Along with that, we're losing all of the habitat, all of the spaces that different organisms that people care about as well. So anything from lobster to conch to the game fish that people come to Florida for will no longer have that habitat. Beyond that, with the loss of the coral reef framework, we actually see an increase of coastal erosion and the effects of waves during large storms. All of these things can have pretty serious implications for the economy in the Keys, I bet. Exactly. So it's estimated that on an annual basis, just tourism related to coral reefs and coral reefs themselves can provide between 2 and $4 billion a year in annual revenue for the state of Florida. So we anticipate that, unfortunately, with the loss of reefs, there could definitely be a strong economic impact. You obviously can't really control the temperature of the water, but is there anything you can do to protect coral from, from the temperatures? So with this marine heat wave event and this potential bleaching event, we can actually use the reefs here as a living laboratory and basically consider what is likely to happen as a climate change experiment. So with coral restoration, a lot of the times we are intentionally determining which coral to put where. And with the temperatures and the potential for bleaching, we'll actually end up seeing which corals do the best during these scenarios. And we can focus science on understanding why those corals did well and then potentially incorporate them into future reef restoration efforts. Some days it is definitely hard to remain optimistic, especially as more data comes in every single day about the atmospheric temperature and the local sea surface temperatures. But with our efforts to really include projections on climate change, I do have optimism that we can restore these reefs with these projections in mind. I've been speaking with Katie Lesneski, Research Coordinator for Coral Restoration at the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Adrian. In the Colombian rainforest, there's a tiny frog caught in a vicious cycle. It's critically endangered due to poaching. And the more endangered it gets, the more lucrative it is to poach. But Planet Money's Stan Alcorn and Charlotte de Beauvoir explain there is a plan to outcompete smugglers. This one tiny spot of rainforest in Colombia, the Anchicaya Valley, is the only place in the world where you can find this frog, the Ufaga Alemani. They used to be all over this valley, but today we had to machete our way through dense jungle for hours. Watch your step. Just to find one frog. Hi! There it is! It's really cute. Red and black with bright white toes, like it just had its nails done. Biologists estimate there are fewer than 5,000 of these frogs left in the wild. As many as 80,000 were taken out of this jungle and smuggled overseas. They weren't readily available, but if you knew who to ask, you could get them. Chris Miller collects frogs in Chicago, and he once bought three smuggled Ufagale manis for $300 each. In the 90s, police were confiscating boxes of this critically endangered frog at the Bogota airport and they'd bring them to Ivan Lozano Ortega. It's a huge responsibility. It's like you, you, you got a, a, a box of panda bears. Ivan is an animal conservationist, and he says because this frog is so rare, it's expensive. Like a diamond. Which makes it worth it to poach. So to save the frog, 
Yvonne hatches a plan to make this diamond of the frog world common and cheap. Our bet was breeding them in large numbers, flooding the market, decreasing the prices. So nobody won ever to go to the jungle and poach these animals to be collected for the international trade. So you're going to put the smugglers out of business with economics, basically. Exactly. Ivan's plan, breed frogs and sell them, so the few remaining in the wild are left alone. With this, we are not going to lose these incredible species anymore. I was really confident. But his first lab-bred Ufaga Lamani frogs sold for one to $2,000 each. Yeah. It turns out breeding and exporting frogs is a lot more expensive than just ripping them out of the jungle. You cannot compete with the smugglers. You need also a backup. So Yvonne comes up with a backup plan to educate the frog collectors. Basically convince them it's worth paying a premium for frogs that were farmed ethically. Chris, the frog collector, he says he'd never buy a smuggled frog again. Today, collectors police themselves. Everyone will crucify you, they'll call you names, you'll get blacklisted. Like there's a, a really negative stigma now with acquiring smuggled frogs. Frog smuggling these days is threatened, but it is not yet extinct. In the last few years, Colombian police have confiscated hundreds more Ufaga Lemani frogs. For NPR News, I'm Charlotte de Beauvoir. And I'm Stan Alcorn. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. More people are experiencing homelessness in Boston this year compared to last year. That's according to data the city has released from its annual homeless census. The census took place the night of January 30th. City workers and volunteers fanned out across the city to talk with unhoused people and collect data from shelters. There was almost a 17% increase in solo adults experiencing homelessness. There was a similar increase in families staying in shelters and transitional housing. The biggest jump was in people staying unsheltered on the streets of Boston after hitting a 30-year low last year. There were 169 people, an increase of 42%. Jim Green, Assistant Director for Street Homelessness Initiatives for the City of Boston, says several factors contributed to people deciding to stay out in the elements. First of all, we had a record warm winter and a nearly snowless winter season. And we noted that a number of the people we saw were new faces who were near major transit hubs. And we know that people migrate into Boston. There's a lack of an adequate safety net in many other communities across the Commonwealth and, in fact, throughout the Northeast. And then there was some recurrence of the encampments at uh, Atkinson Street uh, near Mass Ave and Melnia Cass, despite really robust efforts to house people and place people into low barrier shelters and transitional sites to help them get off the street. When, when I look at the, uh, the census that, uh, that just recently came out, uh, you know, obviously the census itself just shows numbers, but it sounds like you know these people a little bit more and, and have a better understanding of, of what they're going through. Yeah, you know, this is work that uh, kind of breaks your heart. You know, people come to us on the streets and in our shelters 
usually from very hard paths, a lot of life struggles, sometimes, you know, behavioral health, certainly substance use disorder has a high prevalence. You know, there are a lot of precipitants into homelessness. Let's focus a little bit more on that encampment at uh, Mass and Cass, uh, the area around Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. Uh, many homeless service programs down in that area, as well as a lot of drug sales. It seems like the city clears out the tents and helps people get into shelter and housing programs, and then the tents return again. Uh, the, the need seems to be endless. Is, is there any way to really get ahead of the tide at Mass and Cass? You know, I think if people could get access to opioid and substance use treatment, where they live, where they're from, where they're struggling before they're displaced and before they're in the kind of desperate mode of seeking alternatives and aggregating to cities, that would be a huge win for people struggling with substance use disorder and for cities and towns across the the Commonwealth. It's just a persistent challenge that our colleagues in public health and in medical care and in opioid treatment advocacy Everybody's a, a team just trying to work to address a really persistent, and I would say in my 40 years of doing this work, probably the single most challenging phenomenon we've ever had to deal with on the street. Mm-hmm. More people are also staying in adult emergency shelters. We should say that family homelessness is also up, as you found in the census. We, we've been reporting on the increase of migrant families arriving in Boston looking for help and the state-run family shelter system being over capacity. But in terms of the increase in adults staying in emergency shelters, what's behind that besides people entering some special programs set up to help people from the mass and cast tent encampment? You know, that, that additional shelter capacity is a significant factor. The beds for adult individuals tend to fill as quickly as we can put them online. And then really people do come into Boston who lack access to a safety net of shelter in the communities where they've been struggling. You know, we're still far below the numbers we were seeing a few years ago, but every bed we open up, there's someone in need who's seeking assistance. Mm -hmm. Homelessness is a dynamic situation. It ebbs and flows. But what's your overall takeaway from this year's census now that you've been able to really analyze the numbers? You know, I I think we have a brittle system in terms of the capacity we need and the number of people who are vulnerable and at risk of homelessness. But it's more an indicator that, you know, between the high cost of housing, the struggles that people have with substance use disorder, challenges in the economy where people at the kind of lower end of the employment structure can't really, you know, make ends meet in a high cost state like Massachusetts and high cost cities like Boston. Just we have a lot of work to do, and we're often picking up for other systems that are inadequately positioned to assist the vulnerable people that come to them. Jim Green, Assistant Director for Street Homelessness Initiatives for the City of Boston, thanks for joining us today on All Things Considered. Thank you, Steve. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Scott Tetro. There's a lot going on in the new Netflix film, They Clone Tyrone. Tyrone Fontaine, played by John Boyega, is a drug dealer who loves his mom and his little brother, and he has a lot of conflicting feelings about the way he makes his money. Except that very early on in the movie, he realizes that absolutely none of that backstory is real because he is a clone. I don't think you understand me. 
there was an elevator underground and, and, and a lab and, and this white with an afro. Hey, man, um, you think you might need some water? You know, sometimes when I'm scratched out, man, I drink me a bottle of water, I be good. So Fontaine links up with a pimp named Slick Charles and a sex worker named Yo-Yo to figure out what is going on. They Clone Tyrone comes from the mind of director Joel Taylor along with his co-writer Tony Rettenmeyer. It combines elements of sci-fi and horror with laugh-out-loud comedy. I talked to Taylor and Boyega about the movie earlier this week, and I started the conversation by asking Taylor just what he was thinking about when he first came up with this idea. I mean, it kind of came from two places, really. The surface plot side and then... That's kind of the nougaty center part of it that kind of came from a yeah. from a different place. But I mean, I think it it really started to come together based on this kind of thematic question of like, is there a difference between blame and responsibility? And really just thinking about friends back home who had some pretty like unfortunate circumstances hit them and that was kind of outside the scope of their control. And blending that with this just seed of an idea me and Tony used to joke about of just making a bootleg Scooby-Doo movie, <laughs> you know, where the detectives were ill-equipped, but somehow very particularly equipped for the task at hand. From there, we just thought, how weird can we make it? And you made it weird. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, John, I'm I'm trying to think of what all I can say or not say about the plot in the world of spoilers. It's safe to say that there are clones in this movie based on the title. But do you remember your first reaction when you read this script? I, you know, had been waiting to get the script for a while. And the thing about me, if I, if I read a script and I don't stand up while I'm reading it, like physically stand up and start kind of like pacing the room, um, pretty much doing that weird actor stuff when you kind of get into it and you try to see yourself <laughs> in a role, then I probably don't like it. If I'm there sitting down throughout the whole read and my head is hurting, I get distracted, I go on the PS5, then it's probably dead. But with this one, I was just glued, not only for what my part would be, but I was just so intrigued by the dynamic and the mesh of genres. And I was excited at the prospect of going down to the States, kind of, you know, learning the culture um, specifically for this role too and then just get into work. John, bring it back to the acting side of this. As you're putting your character together, as you're reading the lines together, were you thinking about how would this character act and talk if they weren't alive yesterday? Or were you not going down to that level with it as, as you thought about how to deliver the lines and respond and things like that? I think it was more about the default settings. What what are the default settings? And then what are the stereotypes that a scientist saw you know, a government organization, what are the stereotypes that were put into a character first? What is the, um, the the level of intensity, the way he walks, the way he moves, the way he looks around? What does that look like in their mind? And what would they create in order to perpetuate a character that kind of keeps his community down by representing this kind of um, violent and, and somewhat maybe quiet but, but dark figure? And then from there, you just start to walk and talk in the shoes of this character and it starts to become more familiar. And then we found him, you know, especially when you go on set and then you start speaking to Slick and you're speaking to Yo-Yo. So, you know, Slick says the line in which he's like, oh, Fontaine, I've never seen you laugh, you know. So in the script itself, you've got kind of pointers to make you, you know, know who you're supposed to create and who you're supposed to portray in that sense. Uh, Joel, let's listen to a key moment early on in the movie. It's the three characters are all eating fried chicken. It's the chicken. The powder. The powder in the chicken. Look, when I was in the trap house, there was some white powder right there. I thought it was cocaine. I took some of it. It wasn't cocaine. I started laughing. You break some. I shoot it. And now we're here. We eat this chicken. We all laughing. It's in the chicken. I mean, <laughs> so this, there, there's, 
they're starting to connect the dots. I mean, it's a great scene, but like then you're starting to get into they're connecting the dots. There's something going on with the cocaine, the chicken, the straightening cream at the beauty salon. And this feels like the part of the movie where the candy outside, as you say, starts to intersect with the nougaty center of the the more pointed message that that the plot of the movie is, is is trying to get to. What what were you going for here? Um, I mean, in that particular scene, I mean, that's a great question because I think I've ever heard like a uh, <laughs> a snippet of the movie played back. I mean, honestly, you know, I think that's the beginning of the detective work, right? It's a little bit absurd, obviously mildly offensive uh <laughs> you need something a bit off the wall to get these three people to kind of make an instantaneous career change so to speak because like in the movie they're not you know pimp a drug dealer prostitute they're really sleuths yeah i guess it's a good sign you spend years writing and filming and producing an editing movie it's a good sign if scenes are still making you laugh after all of that oh i mean <laughs> i was also just laughing because i didn't expect it so <laughs> Oh. I've long since stopped laughing. I've seen it so many times and desensitized, you know. But I was like, oh, like, he just pulled out the clip on me. It's a full NPR experience here. Play the clip, talk about it, you know. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. I love that. Well, that leads to one of the challenges I wanted to ask you about because there are a lot of really funny moments in this, and a lot of them come from from your co-stars, Jamie Foxx and, and Tiona Paris. They are they are so funny together, and you are in the middle of them the whole time. What was it like to stand in between them and keep that serious demeanor where you hardly ever spoke as the character? I think it was fun. I was busting up laughing half of the time. I'm definitely much more of a lighter guy in terms of my personality um, in comparison to Fontaine. But, you know, knowing the, the goal, the goal is to just, you know, feel the character so that people actually get the joke. So it was it, it was dope. I mean, I, I learned so much being in between both of them. You know, I was, most of the time I was like, damn, I would love to get involved in a banter. Um, but it was hilarious. You know, the dynamics worked. And, you know, that's what we made, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, 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 want, I want to ask you both of this to end things. Everybody at NPR who worked on this interview, we all watched it on our own because, you know, that's usually what you do with Netflix. But, but when we were talking about it, we all kept thinking, wow, this, this feels like a movie you need to watch with a crowd of people to laugh at it, to gasp at it. I mean, it's such an experience. I understand there's a limited theatrical release, but, but I'm wondering, do you think people should be, you know, planning they clone Tyrone parties to watch on Netflix? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think this is definitely one to have with a group, for sure. Um, the movie is fun. It's funny. Like, it's, um, it just reminds me of the old school exploitation movies. You know, bring a crowd together, get the snacks, and do whatever you do, and, you know, get lit a little bit, and then, you know, watch the film. <laughs> it's one of them ones. <laughs> I definitely think the ideal way to watch it is in a group setting. Even if it is, just like have a cookout or something, you know what I'm saying? Like somebody have like a family <laughs> shindig or, you know, they come back around on Thanksgiving type movie, everybody at the house cooking and eating and sit down and watch it and make it a communal experience. John Boyega and Joel Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, man, thank you so much. I appreciate that. They Clone Tyrone is in theaters now and on Netflix July 21st. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, with a variety of British mysteries available for streaming, including all seasons of Luther, Father Brown, and Silent Witness, Available during Mystery Month at BritBox.com NPR. 
From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Sony Pictures Classics presenting The Miracle Club, a new film starring Maggie Smith, Kathy Bates, and Laura Linney about four women who travel to Lourdes in search of a miracle. Now playing only in theaters. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy in Marlboro. Day and boarding school for grades 6 to 12. Free Innovation Studio Workshop, July 17th. NEIacademy.org. I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Hollywood actors have gone out on strike, joining the TV and movie writers who have been out on strike since May. It's the first time both unions have been manning the picket line since 1960. It's Friday, July 14th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, how the strike will continue to affect the entertainment industry. The biggest issue for both parties is fair pay. Also ahead, the U.S. House has approved a package of defense policies that are intended to counter those of President Biden. The Senate version is expected to be far different. And fundraising data can give a sense of voter excitement surrounding a candidate. We'll look at the latest Federal Election Commission data to see what it reveals how donors feel about President Biden. Red Sox are back in action tonight after the All-Star break. It's 5.01. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Republican-controlled House narrowly passed a defense authorization spending bill with amendments that counter the policies of President Biden, including rejecting funding for abortion, transgender medical care, and diversity training. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy praised the bill, accusing Democrats of putting, quote, wokeism before national defense. Stop using taxpayer money to do their own wokeism. A military cannot defend themselves if you train them in woke. We don't want Disneyland to train our military. But the future of the measure is in doubt since the Senate bill is not expected to include that funding. Democrats say it would interfere with readiness because it would reduce the number of people who apply to join the armed forces. Lawyers for former President Donald Trump have filed new motions to disqualify the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, from investigating him. Prosecutors say there are, they are expected to announce charges next month against people who allegedly tried to overturn the 2020 election result. Sam Greenglass of member station WABE has more. Trump is asking the Georgia Supreme Court and the Fulton County Superior Court to bar Fulton County District Attorney Fawnie Willis from prosecuting him. He also wants to quash the findings of a special grand jury that spent months investigating post-election activities and recommended multiple indictments. Trump's lawyers filed a similar motion in the spring, saying the investigation violated all notions of fundamental fairness. But Fulton County Judge Robert McBurney has yet to rule, so he's now listed as a defendant in this new suit. With potential indictments looming, Trump's lawyers say their client has no meaningful option other than to seek intervention from the court. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. 
The dangerous heat wave across much of the western part of the country continues, and forecasters say it will extend into early next week. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports excessive heat warnings are in effect across parts of several states in the southwest, too. Heat advisories are now in effect across Oregon and southern Idaho, where forecasters say temperatures this weekend could hit 109. They're warning of dangerous conditions that could result in heat-related illnesses for anyone who spends prolonged time outside. This latest heat dome is especially of concern for scores of farm workers from Idaho to the Central Valley of California, where an excessive heat warning is in effect through Monday. Temperatures could reach 117 in parts of Bakersfield and Kern County. The higher altitudes of the Sierra won't be of much respite either. Forecasters say temperatures could be well over 100 in the foothills, raising the wildfire risk. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Missoula. Wall Street a mixed territory by the closing bell, the Dow gaining 113 points. The Nasdaq was down 24, the S&P 500 down 4. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Senator Elizabeth Warren is cheering the Biden administration's decision to cancel nearly $40 billion in student loan debt. The plan could impact more than 800,000 people. The U.S. Department of Education will forgive the loans by updating an existing program. Speaking on Radio Boston today, Senator Warren says the change is a step in the right direction. It doesn't require a new policy, which means it does not uh, give an opportunity for some uh, uh, extremists to head into some court and try to stop this from going forward. So I feel pretty confident. The Supreme Court struck down the Biden administration's $400 billion student loan forgiveness program. A Mattapan man pleaded not guilty today to charges related to the shooting death of his 12-year-old brother. The charges against 22-year-old Walter Hendrick include improperly storing a firearm. The 12-year-old died yesterday after being shot inside a Mattapan home. After the Department of Public Health detected the West Nile virus in mosquitoes in Worcester and Brookline, a public health professor says climate change is making people more susceptible to the disease carried by the insects. Northeastern University's Neil Manyar says higher temperatures and extreme weather increase the days people are exposed to mosquitoes. He also says the heat helps the virus reproduce. The risk for mosquitoes that are carrying an illness also increases as temperatures go up. So now we have both a risk of being exposed to mosquito and a risk of being bitten by a mosquito that is carrying an illness. People are encouraged to protect themselves from mosquito bites by covering arms and legs and by using insect repellent. Flying is a challenge between Boston and New York this afternoon. Thunderstorms in the New York area are delaying flights out of Newark, JFK and LaGuardia airports. Right now, the FAA delays out of Newark are averaging three hours. Departing flights from Logan are also running behind schedule because of the backups. In sports, the Red Sox are back in action tonight after the All-Star break. Brian Bayo gets the start for the Sox. Kyle Hendricks goes for the Chicago Cubs. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Some of the storms may produce heavy rain. Lows tonight will be around 71 degrees. It's 81 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. 
From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. Hollywood writers have been on strike for weeks now, and yesterday Hollywood actors joined the picket line. The last time there was a tandem strike in Hollywood was 1960, when Ronald Reagan was president. Not of the U.S., but of the Screen Actors Guild. Negotiators for both sides expressed satisfaction with the contract and the belief that it's fair and equitable and will lead to stable labor-management relations in the industry. Back then, the fight was over residual payments in light of a relatively new invention at the time, reruns. And today, new technologies are driving the disputes again. For more, we've called Kim Masters. She's the editor-at-large of The Hollywood Reporter and host of The Business for member station KCRW. Welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. I need to note at the outset that many uh, of NPR's employees are also in SAG-AFTRA. As am I, yes. We're in the broadcast unit, and we're not on strike. We are not striking. And so that said... Um, we are in day one of this actor's strike, and I'm wondering if you could just give us a sense of, of what Hollywood feels like right now. I think there's a tremendous amount of anxiety, of course, and anger. I, if you heard Fran Drescher speaking yesterday, she's now head of SAG-AFTRA. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it, quite frankly. You know, this was a very passionate, angry statement that the studios are not being fair. And of course, during labor disputes, the rhetoric is always very hyperbolic and heated up. But this time, I actually think the anger is real and it's not just uh, posturing. You know, in these negotiations, actors seem to be really concerned about a lot of bread and butter issues in this contract that they're trying to negotiate, Uh, better pay, health and pension plans. But at the core, there seems to be, you know, this deep and fundamental concern about the way that technology is changing how they work and how they get paid. Is your sense that that's really at the core of the impasse between actors and studios right now? Very much so. The legacy studios have had their business very much disrupted by starting their own streamers to compete with Netflix and Amazon. This is a very expensive game, you know, uh, trying to come up with original material, trying to get people to subscribe to your thing and make money out of it. And honestly, the studios haven't figured out how to make money off of this. So that is part of the issue. And then there is the other technology issue, which is AI. And no matter what member of the studio's group you know, whether they're a streamer like Netflix or not, the uh, actors and the writers are very distrustful as to how they are going to use AI. They do not want to be replaced by AI. They do not want their images generated if they're actors and used in a way they don't want. So this is something that is very, very much part of the uh, argument right now. And it's clear, you know, it's like, for example, to the writers that they, the studios could generate an AI script and say, give this a polish. And already the writers are feeling like the streamers have been shorting them and the anxiety around technology generally is very much at the heart of this, yes. And because streaming services have become such a dominant part of the industry, uh, actors' pay has become a lot more dependent on uh, residuals. Can you just, for listeners who might not know what a residual is, explain what that is and how that's uh, affecting actors' livelihoods in Hollywood? Yes. I mean, they fought for this back in the day when they started uh, having repeats of shows the actors would get paid. I mean, just using myself as an example for fun, I did a brief, brief cameo. I'm not an actress on The Good Wife some years ago, the Mm. CBS show, and I am still getting tiny little checks from that very brief appearance. 
and what these people are, you know, seeing the streamers not wanting to be transparent about how successful a show was, you know, what is their piece of the pie? They had a piece of the pie in the previous model and it enabled many people to earn a living, but it, you know, that model is dying and the new model is not paying them the actors residuals and the writers, you know, they feel like we create this stuff that you're getting all this money from. Where is our piece of that? How disruptive and, and destructive is this strike and really the combination of the actor strike and the writer's strike for Hollywood right now? Well, the writers were already being pretty effective in shutting down production by showing up when people were shooting and picketing and making a lot of noise. The actors shut the industry down. I mean, the industry is now shut down. We saw the cast of Oppenheimer, the new Chris Nolan film that's coming, walk away from the premiere in London the minute mm. the strike was called. We saw Matt Damon saying, we are out. So everything is now shut down. And the studios, you know, they, they want to play hardball, but they can't afford this either for a long time. You know, they, they need new material. They're trying to get people to sign up for their streamers. They're trying to get people back into theaters. And it also is destructive to LA. Uh, you know, this is costing millions of dollars a day to the community here. It is a very, very destructive moment. And the more it drags on, the worse it gets. Well, I appreciate you for following it for us. That's Kim Masters, editor-at-large for The Hollywood Reporter. Thanks so much. Thank you. The House has narrowly passed a nearly $900 billion defense package. It's a bill that comes up every year and normally enjoys bipartisan support. This time around, most Democrats voted against it, arguing their GOP colleagues attached poison pill amendments on culture war issues like abortion that made the bill unacceptable. NPR's Barbara Sprunt has more. On this vote, the yeas are 219 and the nays are 210. The bill is passed without a With this, vote. roughly six decades of precedent were shattered. Traditionally, members of both parties show significant support for the annual defense bill, which sets Pentagon policy and spending levels for the year ahead. But conservatives like Pennsylvania Congressman Scott Perry threatened to block a vote unless House Speaker Kevin McCarthy allowed changes to roll back racial diversity programs and prohibit specialized care for transgender service members or their families. The military needs to be focused on readiness and lethality. And all these other things are distractors from that and, and harm our national security. McCarthy relented and defended the move. Radical programs that are forced our troops at the expense of a readiness are now eliminated. Cutting edge technology that is essential for the future of this country and to keep freedom around the world in the rise of China and Russia will receive more investment than we've watched in the past. Perhaps the biggest amendment that many Democrats say they couldn't stomach was offered by Texas Republican Congressman Ronnie Jackson to roll back Pentagon policies reimbursing servicewomen for travel costs out of state to obtain an abortion. Here's Jackson. Taxpayer money provided to DOD is intended to provide for our national defense and our national security, not to promote and support the Biden administration's radical and immoral pro-abortion agenda. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the Biden administration created a policy that covers just the travel costs of service members who obtain abortion services. 
Republicans say this violates a federal ban on using taxpayer dollars. New Jersey Democrat Mikey Sherrill, a veteran herself, argues the amendment puts service women's lives at risk if they're stationed in states that have passed abortion restrictions. How am I supposed to recommend to young girls in my district that they should attend a service academy like I did when we know this amendment would mean that they'd be signing away their right to basic health care? This amendment makes our service women pawns in their extreme agenda and is a stepping stone to larger bans, restrictions, and wholesale disregard with women's health care in America. The defense package includes items that lawmakers in both parties generally support, like a 5.2% base pay increase for service members. There's also increased access to child care, health care, and housing for military families. But only four Democrats ended up voting for the bill. Here's Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries after the vote. Extreme MAGA Republicans have hijacked a bipartisan bill that is essential to our national security and taken it over and weaponized it in order to jam their extreme right-wing ideology down the throats of the American people. Few of these controversial policies are likely to advance in the Senate, where lawmakers are expected to vote this month on their own version of the defense package. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. Now a quick journey into the tall grass prairie of central Kansas. NPR's Brian Mann went for a trail run through birdsong and past a distant bison herd, and he sent this audio postcard. Just before dawn, I let myself in through one of the cattle gates in the Tall Grass Prairie National Preserve north of Wichita. These fences maintained by the National Park Service actually keep a bison herd from roaming outside the preserve's 11,000 acres. I can't see any of the big animals from here, but as I lace up my sneakers to run, I realize the fields around me are flush with birds. I set off running west on the gravel trail, climbing toward an enormous full moon that hangs just above the horizon. It is like a sea of grass around me. There's great waves of hills rising up and the dawn light is just coming over the horizon. The birds, I mean, it's just crazy. At this hour, I'm the only human here. But up ahead, I see the herd of 50 or so bison, shaggy, big-shouldered beasts. They've gathered across the path, blocking it. I want to keep my distance, so I turn and wade into the waist-high grass. Then on a ridge ahead of me, maybe a football field away, a massive bull lumbers into view. Dancing around him are these calves, like sprinting around through the grass, going in mad little playful dashes. I back away, turning down into a valley along a muddy creek past a grove of cottonwood trees. There are wildflowers, just wildflowers everywhere. And, you know, I think of this as being kind of a rough, arid country, sort of cowboy country, but the wildflowers are just as delicate as you can imagine. Before running back to the gate, I stop and just look. Prairie like this used to cover 170 million acres of North America, most of it gone now. But standing here, I can see no human footprint. There are bison and swales of sweetgrass all the way to the horizon and a vast blue sky, all completely wild. Brian Mann, NPR News in the Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve. This is NPR News. 
This is WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 82 degrees in Boston at 518. Coming up in about 25 minutes on 90.9 WBUR, independent Russian media outlets are estimating 47,000 Russian soldiers have been killed so far in Ukraine. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day mixed. The Dow was up 0.33% at 34,509. NASDAQ was down 0.18% at 14,114. And the S&P 500 down one-tenth of a percent at 4,505. In local business news, a pilot program is underway at a local school to address a shortage of automotive mechanics. David Protano is Dean of Automotive Technology at Mass Bay Community College. The shortage started... 20 years ago, and it's just been a slow progression, and it's it's really hitting its peak now. The awareness, you know, is getting is getting back to technical education. Mass Bay is running a three-week intensive training course for 25 Framingham High School students and recent graduates. The program is geared to students who might not have access to vocational training during the school year. JetBlue and American Airlines announced today they are ending their alliance in which the airline sold seats on each other's flights and honored each other's frequent flyer benefits. A judge ruled the agreement violates antitrust laws. JetBlue says the practice will end next Friday so it can get its proposed purchase of Spirit Airlines approved. The Justice Department is trying to block that deal. JetBlue is Logan Airport's largest carrier. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. BostonChildrens.org slash answers. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Tap and listen to WBUR anywhere this summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you might have missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. They were supposed to revolutionize revolutionize the world of finance, but cryptocurrencies have gone through a rough patch lately. Now a legal battle is underway that could determine crypto's future. It's a fight between a powerful financial regulator and someone who went from flipping hamburgers to starting and running the largest cryptocurrency exchange out there. NPR's David Gura has the story. Binance may not be a household name, but in the world of crypto, it's huge. More than 100 million people use it to buy and sell Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. 
But Binance is not just a trading platform like the New York Stock Exchange, according to Yeshi Yadav. She's an expert on digital assets at Vanderbilt Law School. It's really hard to overstate how important Binance is to the crypto ecosystem. It's a multi-billion dollar company with a gargantuan footprint, Yadav says. Binance has a research arm and a lending business. In some countries, it offers a crypto debit card. And Binance is also a marketplace for even riskier investments and digital art. It's effectively a crypto Amazon, a one-stop shop for everything. That's a model that doesn't exist in traditional finance, and it's alarmed regulators who argue crypto is like the Wild West. Companies operate in a regulatory gray area. They've gotten bigger, they do more, and that's led to scrutiny of businesses like Binance. It is an organization that is presenting a massive headache for regulators to understand how it works and the risk that it's creating. Wall Street's top cop, the Securities and Exchange Commission, wants crypto companies to follow the rules every other financial firm has to. In a sweeping lawsuit, the SEC claims Binance is operating in a legal exchange in the U.S., and the agency says Binance sits atop a sprawling and shadowy web of corporate subsidiaries, a web that's been spun by Changpeng Zhao, better known by his initials CZ. He's a crypto celebrity who's gotten top billing at business conferences all over the world, like one recently in Germany. It's a great pleasure, and let's welcome CZ. To other Bitcoin true believers, CZ is a visionary, but that's not how SEC Chair Gary Gensler sees him. He told Bloomberg TV there's a lot Binance's customers don't know about what CZ and his company do with their money behind the scenes. We know Mr. Zhao controls it all. We know that investors were misled about the risk controls and that they concealed an awful lot from the investing public. The SEC has accused Binance and CZ of deceiving customers and of funneling their money into another firm CZ controls, drawing comparisons to what was going on at FTX before that crypto company collapsed spectacularly less than a year ago. Binance declined NPR's request to interview CZ, but in 2021, he was asked how he got his start. CZ was born in China, but his family immigrated to Canada a few years later. When I was 15, I was flipping burgers in McDonald's uh, in Vancouver. I also worked at at a gas station after that. It's the beginning of a crypto rags-to-riches story. CZ went to college in Montreal, interned at a software company in Tokyo, and he's been on the move ever since which has given him a unique perspective on global finance. I was living in different places, so I never really got married to one currency, one country, etc. And that explains what's made cryptocurrencies so appealing to him. By design, the crypto economy is borderless, built to operate outside the boundaries of traditional finance. CZ first learned about it at a poker game in Shanghai, where a businessman told him he should convert 10% of his money into Bitcoin. But CZ decided to go all in. He sold everything. And he got a rude awakening a few months later when Bitcoin lost half its value. My relatives were all like, my mom wants to spank me on the head, saying like, (laughs) you stupid kid. But CZ held on. Bitcoin rebounded, and as its value and its popularity surged, CZ saw an opportunity to build a new exchange that would make it easy for people to get into crypto. He founded Binance in 2017, and a few months later at a conference in Singapore, he stressed how much faith he had in crypto's staying power. CZ showed off a tattoo he'd gotten of his company's logo on his forearm. 
There are some people who are uncertain about the future of this industry. I'm, I'm very certain we're here to stay. But today, the future of Binance, at least in the U.S., and CZ's future in the industry are up in the air. Binance has faced allegations it's facilitated money laundering, and it has business ties to China, which the company disputes. But the SEC's lawsuit is the biggest challenge so far. Binance and CZ deny the charges, and they say they intend to fight them. And CZ continues to insist he is not totally against crypto regulation. This is what he said at a conference in 2021. I am not a complete libertarian. Uh, I'm not an anarchist. I don't believe human civilization is advanced enough to live in a world without no, with no rules. But what rules? That's at the heart of this. Binance and other crypto companies have been trying to shape a new regulatory framework, one that's favorable to them. They argue many existing rules don't apply. Well, this lawsuit will help determine if they're right. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Angie. Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. This morning at 8, hundreds of people in Boulder, Colorado, headed off to work in their inner tubes. It's the city's annual tube-to-work day. Colorado Public Radio's Janet McMurtry was there. Today, today we create the world's greatest traffic jam. Jeff Kagan organized the city's first tube-to-work day 15 years ago with a friend. It always begins with what he calls the creed. He's standing on a stage wearing a pink sequined blazer. A singular sort of congestion that unites us with our fellow commuter instead of enrages and divides. Today... About 400 tubers await their turn to launch into Boulder Creek. It's a mile upstream from the heart of the city. Today, my friends, we are tubing to work! People are pumping up inflatable tubes. Rescue volunteers line the creek just in case. Today, today we will fill the foyers of various office buildings throughout the county with moistened business attire and deflated tubes. Kagan's heard from other places looking to organize their own version of Tube to Work Day. Boulder is the only one to make it an official annual event. He says he's proud of his city. I know a lot of cities would see an event like this and say, mm, mm -mm. our city of Boulder does the opposite. I just tube to work as a squid. It's Carrie Doyle's fourth year. This year, she won the costume contest. It's a squid hat. It's um, just a, an orange squid with eyes on the side and tentacles that hang down around my face. Another woman, Kelly McBride, is dressed up like Wonder Woman. Normally, she wears scrubs to her nursing job. Her favorite part is the snacks volunteers supply. And they throw bacon down on fishing lines and you have to grab it! <laughs> Nice. And like probably five other people tried before you, so you've got hands all over the bacon and it's wet and it's cold. She says she still eats the bacon anyway. It's kind of gross, but it's part of the fun. For NPR News, I'm Jenna McMurtry. It's NPR News. 
Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 81 degrees in Boston at 5.30. Ahead on All Things Considered, what fundraising data reveals about how donors feel about President Biden. That's ahead here on WBUR. Mostly cloudy with a chance of some showers and thunderstorms tonight. The lows will be around 71 degrees. On a recent Wait, Wait, Roxanne Roberts sent a warning to the aspiring politicians posting workout selfies online. There's a lot of men who think that they look really good naked or without shirts, and somebody needs to disabuse them of this. I'm Peter Sagal. You never know when one of those guys will pop up on your screen, so stay safe by sticking to the radio. As we talk to Broadway legend Patti Lapone on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. White House officials say President Biden almost certainly won't sign a bill, a version of the National Defense Authorization Act that mirrors the one House Republicans passed earlier today. That bill included a number of partisan provisions, such as ending the department's policies regarding abortion, despite a number of other items Democrats support. National Security Council coordinator John Kirby says the president won't sign a bill that makes it harder for people to serve in uniform. The president's comfortable and confident that uh, that he's not going to sign legislation that's not going to uh, affect our military readiness in a negative way or affect our people. Uh, he'll leave it to members of Congress to decide how they're going to vote on this for themselves. But obviously, he's not going to support uh, amendments. He's not going to support legislation uh, that's going to put our readiness or our troops at any greater risk. The House measure's controversial amendments will not likely be included in the democratically controlled Senate version. 340,000 UPS workers could be heading for a strike next month, as NPR's Danielle Kay tells us the delivery company is training its non-union employees to step in if a strike does occur. UPS workers represented by the Teamsters Union are prepared to walk off the job if the union and the company don't agree on a new contract by the end of this month. UPS says the company is training its non-union employees to, quote, serve our customers if there is a labor disruption. The company says it's a temporary training plan that won't affect current operations. But a Teamsters spokesperson told NPR the union sees this training as a waste of company resources and an insult to unionized workers who are fighting for better pay. Contract negotiations between UPS and Teamsters broke down last week, with each side blaming the other for walking away from the talks. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Kay. You're listening to NPR News. The UN Children's Agency UNICEF says the number of children who've died in smugglers' boats has doubled this year compared to last. NPR's Ruth Sherlock says many are traveling alone from the Mediterranean Sea to Europe. UNICEF says this year so far, 289 children have died at sea while on smugglers' boats trying to reach a better life in Europe. They estimate that 11,600 children have made the crossing this year and that a majority are actually travelling alone. UNICEF says these numbers have increased because more people are fleeing conflict and the effects of climate change, but also because of the failures by governments in the region to enable safe access to asylum. It calls on European countries and the European Union to expand options for family reunification, for refugee resettlement and other humanitarian visas so that children don't have to take the perilous journey in illegal smugglers' boats. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. 
Forecasters say a heat wave in Europe will continue through the weekend as high pressure from North Africa reaches the Mediterranean. Temperatures in southern Europe could reach 118 degrees over the coming days. The European Space Agency is tracking the brutal weather and says the satellite data show ground temperatures as high as 140 degrees in parts of Spain. In Greece, the government there has adjusted working hours to avoid the midday heat. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The number of people experiencing homelessness in Boston has increased. Data from this year's homeless census show there were almost 17% more single adults experiencing homelessness on the night of the January count compared to last year. The number of families staying in shelters rose more than 18%. The city points to the opioid epidemic, post-pandemic evictions, and more migrant families arriving here as contributing factors. A Mattapan man pleaded not guilty today to charges related to the shooting death of his 12-year-old brother. The charges against 22-year-old Walter Hendrick include improperly storing a firearm. The 12-year-old died yesterday after being shot inside a Mattapan home. After today's arraignment, Diane Ellis talked about her grandson and his death. He was, I would say, very helpful, loving respectful, a lot of respect. Until I get some answers, my feelings are numb. It's numb. Prosecutors say Walter Hendrick does not have a criminal history. Boston City Councilor Kendra Lara says she is hopeful she will be re-elected despite her driving record and last month's crash that injured her seven-year-old son. Lara tells the Boston Globe she hopes her constituents will focus on her two years of work on the city council. Lara is facing two primary opponents in September. Police say Lara crashed her unregistered and uninsured car into a Jamaica Plain home while she was going twice the speed limit. Flights at Logan that are scheduled to fly into Newark Airport are being delayed by three hours because of thunderstorms in the New York area. Flights to JFK are experiencing two-and-a-half-hour delays. The flights to LaGuardia are running two hours behind schedule. It's 536. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. Mostly cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms may produce some heavy rain. It's 81 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Last September, officials in Russia issued a rare statement, a statement on the number of Russian soldiers who have been killed in the war in Ukraine. It put that number at 5,937. Now, this is widely considered to be well below the true number, and since then we have heard nothing from the Kremlin on casualty numbers, so... 
two independent Russian media outlets took it upon themselves to figure it out. Medusa and Media Zona are newsrooms with staff both inside and outside of Russia. They put the true number of Russian soldiers killed in Ukraine since the beginning of the war at about 47,000. We're joined now by Mika Golubovsky, the English language editor for Media Zona. Welcome. Uh, thank you. So this number that you have arrived at, it's, it's approaching 10 times what the Kremlin has officially acknowledged. Why should we trust your number? Well, Media Zona has been collecting data on soldiers who died during the war for over a year now. Mm-hmm. Together with BBC's uh, Russian service and a group of volunteers, we just collected via social media reports there from uh, officials or from relatives of soldiers who died. Uh, Some of the volunteers sometimes go to cemeteries across Russia and uh, just take images of graves of soldiers who died in Ukraine. So you're literally, people have been going to cemeteries, counting the number of gravestones and saying, hang on. Yes, yes. You also used information from the Register of Inheritance Cases. This is the agency that collects applications um, of Russian citizens for inheritance, and that helped you determine excess mortality. Tell me how that works. Yes. So there's this national probate registry in Russia, and all of the deaths of people who leave any kind of significant inheritance, like cars, houses, that kind of stuff, is in this database. And what we did, basically, is we calculated the excess mortality for males in different age groups. So, for instance, uh, 20 to 24, we saw that there's a huge spike in male deaths compared to female deaths. We were then able to compare it with the data for uh, Rostat, which is the federal statistics agency, and Our estimates were in line with what we got from the uh, Rostad data for 2022. Will your work, will people in Russia be able to see it? Uh, Yes, Uh, not not without difficulty, but both Midyazona and Medusa have been blocked in Russia, the sites, since the start of the war. But first of all, People are using VPNs in Russia, virtual private networks that allow you to access uh, sites that are banned inside of Russia. Plus, we have a system of uh, mirror sites. Uh-huh. They blocked over 150 mirror sites for Mediazona at this point, but we were able to provide our readers with new mirror sites. You are able to speak freely with me right now because you are in Latvia. Not in Russia. Yeah, yeah. Is there any risk to you or to your colleagues who are inside Russia from you speaking to us? Well, any journalist who is in Russia is at risk, whether it's a Russian journalist or a foreign correspondent. And the example of Evan Gershkovich is, is, is you the know. The Wall Street Journal correspondent yeah. who's been detained. Yeah. Yeah, for over 100 days. And we all were just shocked when he was arrested. So, you know, doing journalistic work from inside Russia, it's not not safe. And the people who are doing it from inside Russia, they, uh, they're doing a tremendous job and we all are in awe. Mika Golubovsky is the English language editor for Media Zona, speaking to us there from Latvia. Thank you. Thank you. 
President Biden is starting his re-election campaign with tens of millions of dollars in the bank. Here's his campaign manager, Julie Chavez-Rodriguez, announcing this past quarter's haul in a video message. I'm thrilled to announce that thanks to the support of grassroots donors across the country, our campaign has raised over $72 million since April. Biden's fundraising totals dwarf the amounts raised so far by Republican candidates Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, but come up short of what Obama and Trump had at this point in their re-election campaigns. Here to run through the numbers with us is NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Hey, Tam. Hello. So, Tam, $72 million is a lot of money. What does that tell us about the campaign? The $72 million combines what was raised by the Biden campaign itself, the Democratic National Committee, and their joint fundraising committees. Biden is the incumbent president, and his campaign is working very closely with the DNC, which is one of the advantages of incumbency. The money is coming from wealthy donors attending fundraisers and also regular people buying Dark Brandon merchandise on the campaign website or responding to a fundraising text. Mm. Biden was making a real dash for cash at the end of June to to meet this fundraising deadline. An example, in just two days of attending fundraisers in San Francisco, I'm told he raised $10 million. Wow. Yeah. Jeffrey Katzenberg is a Biden campaign co-chair. There's only one word. Blockbuster. And Katzenberg knows a thing or two about blockbusters. Uh, He co-founded the movie studio DreamWorks. Uh, Leading into this announcement, though, there was a fair bit of hand-wringing about a lack of enthusiasm for Biden. Biden, though, uh, Katzenberg, though, says that this is proof that the president has plenty of support. The doubters and naysayers actually couldn't have gotten it more wrong. Look at these numbers. 400,000 grassroots donors showed up. And 97% of those donations are under $200 with the average at $39. Those are stunning numbers. Okay, Tam, but uh, is it really as good as he says it is? Because uh, as we noted in the intro, that is not as much as uh, some recent past uh, re-election campaigns. It's hard to do a perfect apples-to-apples comparison, but in the same time frame of their re-election campaigns, President Obama combined with the DNC and President Trump uh, with the RNC both raised more than Biden and the DNC did this past quarter. Uh, But as one Democratic official put it to me, Biden isn't running against Trump in 2019 or Obama in 2021. It's 2024. (laughs) Right. He's, he's, He's going to be running against one of the Republicans now vying for their party's nomination. So how uh, does Biden's fundraising compare to them? Uh, Trump and his affiliated committees say they raised $35 million in the second quarter, while Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign reported raising $20 million, though uh, he officially got into the race a month after Biden. And we're still waiting on reports from many of the other Republican candidates. And a big difference here, none of these candidates can count on the funds raised by the Republican National Committee because the primary hasn't happened yet. Well, the Federal Elections Commission reporting deadline is tomorrow night. Uh, What could we learn from those reports that we aren't learning from these campaign announcements? All of the things that they didn't want us to know. Uh, Mm Self-reported numbers tend to accentuate the positive. Uh, And one thing that we are certain to get more detail on is where the money is coming from exactly, and importantly, where it's going and how fast they're spending it. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith, thanks so much. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
It's hard for kids in 2023 to imagine life before cell phones, all that stuff you need all over the place instead of in one tiny device. Calculator, like board games, newspapers, walkie-talkies. That's a teenager visiting a new exhibit at the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. He's learning about cell phones, the science of how they work, and their impact on our planet. NPR's Meta Ulibi stopped by. Most of us do not think about how our cell phones work, that is, until they stop working. But at this bustling, beeping exhibit called Cell Phone Unseen Connections, kids are off their phones. They dance in front of giant screens that turn them into people-sized emoticons with round yellow heads and smash buttons on displays that explain how touchscreens work. We've learned about how wireless network isn't actually wireless. Ten-year-old Nimei Kalu, visiting from Virginia, is understanding everything exhibit writer Laura Donnelly-Smith had hoped for. Her job was to explain things like infrastructure, spectrum, transmitters, and frequencies to people of all ages. The secret, she says, was to marvel at how someone in Chicago can call someone in Madagascar. Light pulses. I mean, data travels in light pulses along fiber optic cables. And it travels basically almost at the speed of light. You won't really hear a delay in light can travel seven and a half times around the world in one second. That, says Nimei Kalu, is amazing. And that's why you can't really hear delays on your phone call. The exhibit, Cell Phone Unseen Connections, is grounded very literally in the earth, says curator Joshua Bell. Here we have 55 mineral specimens. Chunks of copper, potassium, quartz, all also inside your smartphone but children may have wrested the tungsten from the earth. This exhibit skates over the violence around conflict minerals. The point, Bell says, is to bring people in. This exhibit was funded in part by T-Mobile and a company that makes cell phone parts. Until we live in a country that funds science, this is what we have to do. Bell says the Smithsonian's oversight keeps corporate sponsors from determining the content. Other potential lightning rods, so to speak, included cutting-edge technology. We also wanted to get into the Gs. You boldly put a 5G tower right in the middle of this exhibition. It's not functioning, but yes, we did. The intention is demystifying tech for visitors wandering in from the National Mall, as well as maybe reporters clueless about what the G in 5G stands for. I didn't even know that G stood for generations before. And most of our visitors don't. We didn't when we started. So it's a really important thing to talk about how this technology has evolved. And how sustainable it is. The exhibit explicitly says the most sustainable cell phone is the one you already own. A silver spiral made of obsolete smartphones gleams in a section about the environment, reuse and repair. If everyone in America uses their phone a year longer, on average it would equal the emissions reduction of taking 636,000 gasoline-powered cars off the road. Exhibit writer Laura Donnelly-Smith might not be surprised to learn visitor Nimei Kalu is already on top of this. I use my dad's old phone but it's not technically mine. One day, Kalu will have his own phone. And the way it will work, maybe using 10G or 30G towers, is, even in this exhibition, difficult to imagine. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown, 82 degrees in Boston at 549. Coming up in a few minutes on 90.9 WBUR, actor Michael Imperioli is back on the map after landing a lead role in season two of HBO's The White Lotus. NPR takes a look at his legacy as Christopher Moltisanti in The Sopranos and more. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100, now on view, icaboston.org. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and Public Radio to help keep quality programming alive, directtire.com. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you don't know the name Michael Imperioli, you might know the name Christopher Moltisanti. You're going to take this family into the 21st century. We're already in the 21st century, though, T. Whatever you say, T, I'd follow you into the gates of hell. Imperioli won an Emmy for playing Tony Soprano's protege in The Sopranos and was nominated four other times for that role. This week, he earned another nomination for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series, this time for HBO's The White Lotus. We're here because we're going to visit the town my grandmother's from. It's a little town, uh, Testa del Aqua. Yeah, that sounds very special. NPR's Erica Ryan spoke to him before the premiere of the most recent season. The Sopranos creator David Chase has his theories about why Christopher Moltisanti has stayed a fan favorite. I think it has something to do with the fact that he knows that somebody's trying to sucker him, exploit him. He may have to do it, but he has a really good bull sensor. Chris, you know me. What could you possibly do to me that I haven't already been through? I'm positive we'll think of something. And Michael Imperioli played a convincing mobster on screen, winning an Emmy for the role and being nominated four more times. You ever feel like nothing good was ever going to happen to you? Yeah, and nothing did. So what? Especially considering he is nothing like his character. He's 57 years old and has gray hair now. He hasn't stopped working since The Sopranos. Theater, film, network TV, some good, some bad. That's in his own words. But it keeps coming back to Christopher, a mobster with other aspirations for life. He's somebody who was always trying really hard, whether it was to be a mobster and to get sober or to be in a relationship, to climb the ladder of success, to write a screenplay. Like he had a lot of aspirations and he actually did the work. He wasn't slack about those things. He took a main role in another hit HBO show, The White Lotus. Welcome to the White Lotus in Sicily. Its second installment took place in Italy. Imperioli played Dominic de Grasso, an Italian-American man traveling back to the motherland with his father and son to visit the village of their ancestors. That was his first major role in some time. Meanwhile, The Sopranos is enjoying somewhat of a revival at the moment. There was a prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, which came out in 2021, and COVID lockdowns presented the opportunity to revisit the show. HBO's parent company said Sopranos viewership went up 179% early in the pandemic. 
And it's in part because some of those viewers are finally old enough to enjoy it. A lot of shows don't get that kind of second wind, you know what I mean? So for young people in their late teens and early 20s to be discovering it, not just discovering but really passionate about their love for it is kind of remarkable and it makes me very happy. Along with the new fan base came memes. On TikTok and in Twitter jokes, Christopher specifically became a fan favorite with Gen Z. And Imperioli is laughing right along with you. I do. I get a kick out of it. I mean, I take it as a, a very high compliment to be the subject of people's memes. Um. <laughs> as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Goodfellas, Martin Scorsese's famous 1990 mobster film, was one of Imperioli's first movie roles. He plays Spider, a bartender that gets shot in the foot and later killed by Joe Pesci's character. It's part of why Sopranos creator David Chase wanted to work with him. He had come from Goodfellas, and so, you know, in my head, he was very cool. Hey, Spider, on your way over here, bring me a cut of water, huh? We found that immediately that uh, it was Pesci, it was De Niro, and uh, Ray Liotta. And we, it was just somebody we felt immediately that he understood intrinsically who Spider was, and he understood the situation and the atmosphere. Director Martin Scorsese said while filming Spider's death scene, Imperioli accidentally crushed a glass in his hand and was sent to the hospital. Scorsese didn't want to make him redo the scene, but the actor insisted. We were really taken by the fact that he was so dedicated. He wanted to get it just right. And he improvised so well with Pesci in character, in context of that world. He was not acting. He was behaving in it. You know, I, I always considered him one of the finest we had worked with. Spire's only on screen in Goodfellas for about five minutes total, but fans love and remember him decades later. He was so truthful that you don't, you can't forget him. You just can't forget the kid. Now, over 30 years later, that kid, or at least the actor behind him, is also a published fiction writer. His coming-of-age novel, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, came out a few years ago. He's also a lead singer. Are you just like I feel like Michael sort of represents like a pure artist. He's genuinely into making art, sort of expressing a statement. That was Imperioli's bandmate, Elijah Amaton, who plays bass in our rock band Zopa. Recently, they've been on tour. Zopa's crowds are undeniably made up of some Sopranos diehards, but that's fine by them. Amaton actually didn't know who Imperioli was when they first started playing together. If you only know him from films or TV, you really have a very skewed idea of what he's like, actually. He described Imperioli as a quiet, humble guy, often lost in thought. Part of that might be that Imperioli and his wife are Tibetan Buddhist. Zopa, their band name, translates to patience in Tibetan. In my 20s, all I did was try to be, you know, successful at my work. You know, you kind of think these things are going to complete you as a human being because you work so hard towards them. And then when they come and come to fruition, you think that that should be an end in itself, and it's not. He says he picked up martial arts as a way of kicking some bad habits, tobacco, alcohol, and more. And that led him to meditation. In 2020, he started regularly streaming meditation classes for anyone to join for free, simply to share his practices. Session two, meditation 101. Thank you for joining me today. And on YouTube, you can find Meditation with Michael Imperioli. Let us start with uh, the nine purifying breaths. I look at Buddhism much more like a science than anything else, than a religion or even a philosophy, kind of a science of mind, really. So in that way, it's been very helpful just to live. Michael Imperioli has more than 100 acting credits on IMDb. 
Many of them you probably haven't seen, and the ones that you have, many of them have one thing in common. Imperioli is playing an Italian-American. But he said that doesn't make him feel typecast. Well, it doesn't get old if it's something that's good. Throughout my career, I've always done a lot of things that nobody really sees, you know. So I never really felt stereotyped. When you're doing things that are less commercial, uh, the people making them have more leeway in casting. They're a little bit more imaginative and take more risks and cast you not just based on the surface thing or the immediate, you know, perception of you. He knows he'll always be known as Christopher Moltisanti. And honestly, he's okay with that. Look, it's very hard to work as an actor, period, like as a profession and have some kind of longevity in this business. And it's even harder to create a character that people remember you for. And David Chase, the man responsible for the character that supposedly defines Imperioli, back in October, he disagreed. I'm glad it makes him happy. But it's also not exactly true. We don't know what he's going to be remembered for. And now that he's up for another Emmy, looks like Chase could be right. Eric Ryan, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. From Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness, with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at WBUR.org beachbooks. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Biden administration is forgiving $39 billion in federal student loan debt for more than 800,000 borrowers. It's a response to years of complaints, lawsuits, and an NPR investigation. It's Friday, July 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, details on the loan forgiveness program. Also ahead, scientists have discovered grains of stardust in a near-Earth asteroid. The dust grains could provide hints about how our solar system formed. And the number of people experiencing homelessness in Boston has increased. This is work that kind of breaks your heart. You know, people come to us on the streets and in our shelters, usually from very hard paths, a lot of life struggles. We'll break down the new data. The Red Sox resume the second half of their season tonight out in Chicago. It's 6.01. Now this news. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Hurst. The House of Representatives narrowly approved the annual defense authorization bill today. For more than 60 years, the defense bill has passed with significant bipartisan support. But as NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports, it's been an unusually partisan debate this year. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy agreed to hardline conservative demands to add policies restricting abortion access limiting Pentagon racial equity programs, and banning gender-affirming care for service members. Democrats across the board criticized the move, and all but four voted no. McCarthy argued current diversity and training programs are harming the military's readiness. A military cannot defend themselves if you train them in woke. The House bill authorizes $886 billion for defense programs. It includes a 5.2% pay raise for service members and policies to combat aggression from Russia and China. The Senate is expected to take up its own version later this month. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. In New York, police have arrested a Long Island architect in connection with three of the long unsolved killings that are known as the Gilgo Beach murders. 59-year-old Rex Hewerman is charged with the murders of three women, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. Suffolk County District Attorney Raymond Tierney. These young women went missing between July of 2007 and September of 2010. They were found in uh, December of 2010 by the Suffolk County Police Department, and then there was nothing. Their bodies were found covered in burlap. Urman pleaded not guilty today. Authorities say they matched his DNA from a discarded pizza crust to genetic material found on the women's remains. He lives across the bay from where the remains of 11 people were found a decade ago. Russian President Vladimir Putin is offering some new insights into last month's uprising by the Wagner Mercenary Group. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has more. In comments to Russia's Kommersant daily newspaper, Putin said he offered Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin and his mercenaries a chance to continue serving despite a mutiny against Russia's top brass over alleged incompetence in Ukraine. The Russian leader was recalling a July 29th meeting with Wagner representatives in the Kremlin just days after the failed mutiny. Putin said many of the mercenaries present appeared eager to accept an offer to continue fighting for Russia under a different Wagner field commander, but that Prigozhin rejected the deal outright. The future of the mercenary force has been a source of intense speculation, with Prigozhin's whereabouts unknown nearly two weeks after ending the rebellion in exchange for promised amnesty in neighboring Belarus. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Wall Street was a mixed territory by the closing bell. The Dow up 113 points, the Nasdaq down 24. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston public school officials say they're expecting more kids to attend summer learning programs this year than in 2022. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, district leaders hope that increase includes more students with disabilities. BPS is on track to add at least 2,000 students to its roster this summer, bringing total enrollment to about 18,000 students. Will Cardwell is with Boston After School and Beyond, an organization that helps BPS run summer learning. He says the district's inclusion work starts with better advertising. We've been working with the SPED department throughout the year to ensure that families knew that these are open to all students. Like, this does not bar you from being involved in courageous sailing or sportsman tennis or, you know, any of the the great opportunities that are offered. Cardwell says his group and the district hope to expand these efforts next year, too. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Boston's new electoral map is likely to stand. Plaintiffs in the lawsuit that forced the city to redraw voting districts notified the court today that they will not challenge the new map. Mayor Wu and the Boston City Council were forced to come up with another plan after a federal judge decided the map may have relied too heavily on race. The MBTA is reminding riders that shuttle buses will replace trains along the B branch of the Green Line starting on Monday. Workers will replace tracks in Alston during the two-week service disruption. The planned improvements were moved up following a trolley derailment last month at Packard's Corner. Somerville is adding another quarter mile of bus lanes to make it more convenient for people to take the bus. Bus Bus-only lanes are being added to both sides of Broadway between McGrath Highway and Minnesota Avenue. The city hopes to improve bus ride times, reliability, and accessibility. The MBTA will also consolidate stops and make them more accessible for people with disabilities. Mostly cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms could produce some heavy rain. The lows will be around 71 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, chance of some showers and thunderstorms before 3 p.m., a high of 84. It's 81 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florida in Culver City, California. $39 billion, that is the amount of student loan debt that the U.S. Education Department will erase for borrowers who were denied the benefits of one program. It was designed to help people based on their income. The announcement came earlier today, and it's part of a promise the Biden administration made last year, in part in response to an NPR investigation. NPR's Corey Turner led that investigation, and he joins me now. Hi, Corey. Hey, Adrian. Corey, tell us about this program. It must have been pretty broken if it needed a $39 billion fix. Yeah, I mean, even Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, in announcing the changes today, used that very word, broken. Uh, The problems all stem from a repayment plan that pegs a borrower's monthly payments to their income. So folks with lower incomes have lower monthly payments, even as low as zero dollars. It was meant to be a safety net in the federal student loan program. These income-driven plans, IDR plans, have also for years promised borrowers that if they make these monthly payments for 20 years, Adrian, Mm -hmm. the government would then forgive whatever's left after that. Here's the problem. Borrowers were spending 20 years or more in this system, but nobody was getting forgiveness. There was this one incredible review from borrower advocates that came down in 2021 in the spring. Abby Shafroth was part of it. She's an attorney at the National Consumer Law Center. We found that there were over 4 million borrowers who had been in repayment for over 20 years, but that only 32 borrowers had ever had their loans forgiven through the IDR program. That's 32 borrowers out of more than 4 million. Wow. Now, Adrian, at least as part of this fix, 800,000 of them are going to be getting their debts erased. And that includes, this is worth noting, some of the oldest borrowers with some of the oldest loans in the entire system. Well, what wasn't working in this program that made it uh, so hard for borrowers to get this debt relief? Yeah, so first, for years when low-income borrowers would call their loan servicer and say, help, I can't afford my payment, 
servicers would often simply put them into forbearance and not an IDR plan. And then in April of 2022, NPR published an investigation that I did with my editor, Nicole Cohen, around a bunch of leaked Ed Department documents that we found that showed even more problems and that the department knew about them for years. So those include several loan servicers weren't even keeping track of borrowers' payments, so they had no idea when a borrower actually qualified for forgiveness. Uh, we also found that the record system that Ed and its servicers use is so bad that when a borrower is transferred from one servicer to another, which happens fairly often, their payment history can get cut off or even lost. And keep in mind, Adrian, that is a problem when getting forgiveness depends on somebody having 20 years of really good records. Sure. Uh, so not long after we published our findings, the Biden administration pledged to do a one-time review of millions of borrower accounts, essentially giving them retroactive credit for all sorts of time that should have counted towards forgiveness, but didn't. And that is what we're seeing right now. Corey, does this uh, announcement today have anything to do with the Supreme Court's recent decision to strike down President Biden's big uh, debt relief plan? No, it, it's a little confusing. Uh, it's just weird timing. Um, it's also worth noting, though, while we're talking about the court, Adrian, that this action is likely not vulnerable to a court challenge because it is essentially the Ed Department trying to fix some very serious longstanding problems within the student loan program. Okay, so uh, is there anything that borrowers uh, will need to do in order to qualify for this relief? Uh, for the most part, no. This is an automatic review the department is doing of borrower records. But there is one group that does need to act. They have very old federal loans. They're known as FEL loans. They are not held by the government. They are held by commercial lenders. These borrowers need to consolidate these old FEL loans into a new federal direct loan in order to qualify. There is time. This review is far from over. Ed says it's going to take them into 2024, which is important. I think these 800,000 borrowers are really just the beginning. That's NPR's Corey Turner. Thank you. You're welcome. Scientists have made a surprising discovery in a sample returned from an asteroid. As NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, it contains tiny particles from far beyond our solar system. NASA researcher Anne Wynn studies dust. A general comment that I get is, I've got dust under my bed you can study. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't study that kind of dust. <laughs> I study stardust. Now, you've probably heard somewhere before this idea that we're all made of stardust. That's because stars forge nearly all the elements in the universe. The atoms that make up our bodies were themselves made inside the core of a star somewhere else. The core is extremely hot, and then as you go out in the atmosphere beyond, it's cool enough so that gas can form and aggregate into tiny grains. Cosmic dust motes. Sometimes the star would explode, blowing the little grains across the galaxy like dandelion seeds. Other times the grains would drift away on their own, traveling on the stellar wind into deep space. Probably a lot of them do get destroyed, but some of them survive and they make it to our region of the universe where our solar system formed. The stardust swirled and clumped and eventually became part of the sun, the planets, and yes, us. These materials all played a part in our life here on Earth. 
The problem is the original dust grains were very fragile, and so when they became part of this new solar system, they were broken up and blended. Their origins were lost. Scientists like Anne Wynne want to know more about where they came from. Yeah, that is one of the big questions in cosmochemistry. Then in 2019, a Japanese spacecraft visited a little asteroid called Yugu. It scooped up a tiny sample, and an even tinier portion of that sample found its way to Wynne's lab. She fired up her best dust analyzers and got ready to nerd out on some asteroid grit. I kind of thought, you know, the results I would get would be kind of run-of-the-mill. But as her team writes in the journal Science Advances, the sample contained organic molecules from deep space, pieces of ancient rock from the very edge of our solar system, and many tiny grains of perfectly preserved stardust. I cannot tell you the excitement I felt and just euphoria almost. Because these grains are part of the story of how we got here, blown on an interstellar wind long ago. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Just about every parent knows this. Toddlers and little kids love to repeat things over and over again. It can sometimes leave parents bored or exhausted when their child asks to read a favorite book for the hundredth time. But in this week's installment of our weekly dose of wonder, NPR's Ritu Chatterjee explains repetition is essential to a child's development. My son was about four months old when I first noticed how he could spend a long time doing the same thing over and over again. He wasn't doing a whole lot back then besides eating, pooping, and sleeping. But the rest of his waking hours, he spent focused on trying to touch the toys in the mobile over his crib. And he kept at it for weeks, even after he'd mastered the work of touching and tugging at the toy. Now, my son is three years old and still busy doing things on repeat. Everything from foods he loves to eat, toys he loves to play with, and YouTube videos he loves to watch. These, these machines also work on me because in the night, the crops are wrong, so they cut it in the night. He's watched this video countless times over the past couple of months, so much that I have become allergic to the soundtrack. But the little guy's enthusiasm persists. See, that is the way to... See, it's pouring in. Oh, it's going to pour what it harvested into the dump truck over there? Yeah. So why do kids love to repeat things? Repetition is a really critical component to early learning. Rebecca Parlakian is an expert on early childhood development at the nonprofit Zero to Three. She says kids are born with a drive to figure out the world around them. So often... I hear adults saying, well, how do we motivate children to learn? Oh, you do not have to motivate children to learn. They are driven to master the world around them. And, you know, they do that through repetition. Learning requires creating new neural circuits in the brain. And she says neural connections in those circuits are reinforced through repeated experiences. So through practice, they're strengthening these connections and they're, you know, building that infrastructure in the brain. Also, she says babies and children are like little scientists. They're testing the rules of the world when they do things on repeat. Think about a really common scenario like a child, you know, a baby even throwing food off the high chair and the dog, you know, leaps on it and eats it up. And it's this 
wonderful, satisfying game. And they keep repeating the game until the baby runs out of the cheese and throws a spoon down instead. The spoon scares the dog and all of a sudden, you know, the dog kind of runs into the other room and the game is over. But the baby learned something new, that the spoon hitting the floor frightens the dog away. Parlekin says as children learn things by doing things over and over, they also start to take some comfort from being able to predict how something will unfold. There's something so nurturing when you can anticipate exactly what will happen in a routine or in a story. That's especially obvious during our son's nighttime routine, which involves my husband or I reading his favorite books. What are we reading? Don't Dumb truck books. Oh. Now I know that this nightly ritual, repeated over and over again, has already taught him so many things about the world around him. Dumb trucks, diggers, loaders, and bulldozers are all types of... Welcome machines. And it also gives him the comfort and safety of knowing that once we're done reading, he will fall asleep with his head resting on my shoulder. Read to Chatterjee, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Hey, thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 81 degrees in Boston at 618. Coming up on All Things Considered, results from last winter's homeless census in Boston are in. We'll take a look at the numbers. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day mixed. The Dow was up 0.33% at 34,509. NASDAQ was down, however, 0.18% at 14,114. And the S&P 500 was down one-tenth of a percent at 45.05. In local business news, Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling on the Justice Department to investigate companies that prepare taxes for people. Warren says a report she released this week found companies like H&R Block may have shared customer data with major tech companies. Speaking on WBUR's Radio Boston today, Warren says the breach likely included sensitive personal information and violated federal law. You cannot share taxpayer information without getting the written permission of the taxpayer. And if you do, you can be subject not just to fines, but to criminal penalties. Warren says Google and Facebook should also be investigated to see if they receive the personal information. This is 90.9 WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Bionova Scientific, a biologics CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services to small and mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. The Red Sox are back in action tonight out in Chicago against the Cubs. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms may produce some heavy rain. Former Labor Secretary Robert Reich put audiences at ease about the fact that he's under five feet tall. I had a variety of of short jokes. I'd come out on stage and I'd say something like, well, as you can see, the economy has worn me down. Robert Reich talks about his height, the advice he gives parents whose children are also short. Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. 
This is All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. More people are experiencing homelessness in Boston this year compared to last year. That's according to data the city has released from its annual homeless census. The census took place the night of January 30th. City workers and volunteers fanned out across the city to talk with unhoused people and collect data from shelters. There was almost a 17% increase in solo adults experiencing homelessness. There was a similar increase in families staying in shelters and transitional housing. The biggest jump was in people staying unsheltered on the streets of Boston after hitting a 30-year low last year. There were 169 people, an increase of 42%. Jim Green, Assistant Director for Street Homelessness Initiatives for the City of Boston, says several factors contributed to people deciding to stay out in the elements. First of all, we had a record warm winter and a nearly snowless winter season. And we noted that a number of the people we saw were new faces who were near major transit hubs. And we know that people migrate into Boston. There's a lack of an adequate safety net in many other communities across the Commonwealth and, in fact, throughout the Northeast. And then there was some recurrence of the encampments at uh, Atkinson Street uh, near Mass Ave and Melnia Cass, despite really robust efforts to house people and place people into low barrier shelters and transitional sites to help them get off the street. When, when I look at the, uh, the census that, uh, that just recently came out, uh, you know, obviously the census itself just shows numbers, but it sounds like you know these people a little bit more and, and, and have a better understanding of, of what they're going through. Yeah, you know, this is work that uh, kind of breaks your heart. You know, people come to us on the streets and in our shelters, usually from very hard paths, a lot of life struggles, sometimes, you know, behavioral health, certainly substance use disorder has a high prevalence. You know, there are a lot of precipitants into homelessness. Let's focus a little bit more on that encampment at uh, Mass and Cass, uh, the area around Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. Uh, many homeless service programs down in that area, as well as a lot of drug sales. It seems like the city clears out the tents and helps people get into shelter and housing programs, and then the tents return again. Uh, the, the need seems to be endless. Is, is there any way to really get ahead of the tide at Mass and Cass? You know, I think if people could get access to opioid and substance use treatment, where they live, where they're from, where they're struggling before they're displaced and before they're in the kind of desperate mode of seeking alternatives and aggregating to cities, that would be a huge win for people struggling with substance use disorder and for cities and towns across the the Commonwealth. It's just a persistent challenge that our colleagues in public health and in medical care and in opioid treatment advocacy Everybody's a a team just trying to work to address a really persistent, and I would say in my 40 years of doing this work, probably the single most challenging phenomenon we've ever had to deal with on the street. Mm -hmm. More people are also staying in adult emergency shelters. We should say that family homelessness is also up, as you found in the census. We've been reporting on the increase of migrant families arriving in Boston looking for help and the state-run family shelter system being over capacity. But in terms of the increase in adults staying in emergency shelters, what's behind that besides people entering some special programs set up to help people from the Mass and Cass tent encampment? You know, that, that additional shelter capacity is a significant factor. The beds for adult individuals tend to fill as quickly as we can put them online. And then really people 
do come into Boston who lack access to a safety net of shelter in the communities where they've been struggling. You know, we're still far below the numbers we were seeing a few years ago, but every bed we open up, there's someone in need who's seeking assistance. Mm -hmm. Homelessness is a dynamic situation. It ebbs and flows. But what's your overall takeaway from this year's census now that you've been able to really analyze the numbers? You know, I I think we have a brittle system in terms of the capacity we need and the number of people who are vulnerable and at risk of homelessness. But it's more an indicator that, you know, between the high cost of housing, the struggles that people have with substance use disorder, challenges in the economy where people at the kind of lower end of the employment structure can't really, you know, make ends meet in a high cost state like Massachusetts and high cost cities like Boston. Just we have a lot of work to do. And we're often picking up for other systems that are inadequately positioned to assist the vulnerable people that come to them. Jim Green, Assistant Director for Street Homelessness Initiatives for the City of Boston. Thanks for joining us today on All Things Considered. Thank you, Steve. In the Colombian rainforest, there's a tiny frog caught in a vicious cycle. It's critically endangered due to poaching. And the more endangered it gets, the more lucrative it is to poach. But Planet Money's Stan Alcorn and Charlotte de Beauvoir explain there is a plan to outcompete smugglers. This one tiny spot of rainforest in Colombia, the Anchicaya Valley, is the only place in the world where you can find this frog, the Ufaga Alemani. They used to be all over this valley, but today we had to machete our way through dense jungle for hours. Oof. Watch your step. Just to find one frog. Aye, there it is. It's really cute red and black with bright white toes, like it just had its nails done. Biologists estimate there are fewer than 5,000 of these frogs left in the wild. As many as 80,000 were taken out of this jungle and smuggled overseas. They weren't readily available, but if you knew who to ask, you could get them. Chris Miller collects frogs in Chicago, and he once bought three smuggled Ufagale manis for $300 each. In the 90s, police were confiscating boxes of this critically endangered frog at the Bogota airport, and they'd bring them to Ivan Lozano Ortega. It's a huge responsibility. It's like you, you, you got a, a, a box of panda bears. Ivan is an animal conservationist, and he says because this frog is so rare, it's expensive. Like a diamond. Which makes it worth it to poach. So to save the frog, Ivan hatches a plan to make this diamond of the frog world common and cheap. Our bet was breeding them in large numbers, flooding the market, decreasing the prices. So nobody wants ever to go to the jungle and poach these animals to be collected for the international trade. So you can put the smugglers out of business with economics, basically. Exactly. Ivan's plan, breed frogs and sell them, so the few remaining in the wild are left alone. With this, we are not going to lose these incredible species anymore. I was really confident. But his first lab-bred Ufaga Lamani frogs sold for one to $2,000 each. Yeah, it turns out breeding and exporting frogs is a lot more expensive than just ripping them out of the jungle. You cannot compete with the smugglers. You need also a backup. So Ivan comes up with a backup plan to educate the frog collectors, basically convince them it's worth paying a premium for frogs that were farmed ethically. 
Chris, the frog collector, he says he'd never buy a smuggled frog again. Today, collectors police themselves. Everyone will crucify you, they'll call you names, you'll get blacklisted. Like there's a, a really negative stigma now with acquiring smuggled frogs. Frog smuggling these days is threatened, but it is not yet extinct. In the last few years, Colombian police have confiscated hundreds more Ufaga Lemani frogs. For NPR News, I'm Charlotte de Beauvoir. And I'm Stan Alcorn. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Mixed results on Wall Street today. The Dow was up while the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 were down. Marketplace is coming up next at 6.30 with all the day's business news. Tonight it's going to be cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms later on. Some of those storms could produce some heavy rain. The lows tonight will be around 71. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers.